This week on Art in the Air features nonprofit executive Alan Harrison discussing his new book, Scene Change, about how nonprofit arts organizations need to be completely revamped. Next, J.J.J. Weinberg, described as the Mark Twain with a paintbrush, producing thought-provoking and diverse body of work. Our spotlights on Chris Acton's beginning weaving class for students at least 55 years old. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City. Aloha, everyone. We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art in the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com slash AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. Well, we'd like to welcome back, actually, to Art in the Air Spotlight. We've had her on before for a more in-depth interview, but it's Chris Acton of Acton Creative, and, uh, of course, she will weave us some stories here about things that she's doing, and uh, she has a special project coming up, but I also want her to update us on all the things that she is doing, her Wednesday uh, little chat that she has on Facebook. Chris, welcome back to Art in the Air Spotlight. Thank you so much. So happy to be here. Always good to hang with you guys. It's always good to hang with you. I don't get to see you as much since you're no longer with the Chester Art Center because you're so busy weaving and everything. So. Right. There's a lot of weaving going on. That is for sure, Larry. Yes. <laughs> so, well, why don't you first update us on just stuff, what you're doing with the uh, Acton uh, Creative and you know, how you're working that out and everything, being out there doing that almost full time. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, things are going great. Honestly, it's um, having an online business turns out is uh, I'm very well suited towards it. <laughs> I uh, don't get me wrong. I love me some people, but just being able to work out of my basement with a camera going, it is a lot of fun. I am in the process of continuing to build my handwoven experience uh, library, which is a collection of short educational videos, all geared towards beginning weavers. And uh, I'm over 140 videos at this point, which is awesome. That's impressive. So, thank you. You know, it has been so much fun just to pick one tiny little topic and address it for, you know, six, seven minutes um, and, uh, and then move on and pick a different topic for the next week. It's been really fun. So those come out on um, Wednesdays. And then uh, Thursday mornings, I do Live at the Loom, which is a <laughs> about a 45-minute live stream that airs on both 
YouTube and Facebook uh, simultaneously. And it's a blast. I uh, typically have anywhere between 35 and maybe 50 people tune in, but they're all over the world. I have uh, these this like international um, audience now, which is so much fun. I've got, you know, Carrie in Spain and Anne in Cyprus and a couple of my Canadians that are very loyal. And <laughs> it's just so much fun. And at this point, what's even cooler is that they know each other. So it's really just this wonderful community. And for me, I'm really honored to kind of be building this online community of weavers that are just so generous and supportive and helpful for each other because the goal for all of us is just to get more weavers in the world because we need them. We need weavers. (laughs) Now, you are a product of the on-ramp program from the Indian Arts Commission. Tell us about that experience. I think we may have touched on it before, but I think for people, I think they're still in the enrollment period currently. But uh, yeah, tell us how that helped you get to where you are now. Yeah, I was part of the original cohort in uh, 2018 of OnRamp, and I didn't really know what I was applying to because it's the first one, and I had no idea. But it was it changed my life. It was a game changer for me. It was really a significant kind of pivotal moment in my career just to have those uh, three days of all intensive uh, uh, focus and education and community all about being an artist and building a business, those two things together. And then to be given uh, grant money from the Indian Arts Commission to uh, help give you a push to help with all of the business side of it. It really, it came at a pivotal time in my kind of building my business anyways. So it was, uh, so, it was wonderful. So Chris, what is that money earmarked for according to the IAC? What did you have to, what could you uh, use it for? What couldn't you use it for? Uh, back in 2018, when I received the grant, I had it. Um, I used the money to build a website, which mm. at the time was really important because I was kind of moving out of retail and more into education. So that became a really kind of critical piece for me to uh, to start with building this whole online business. So yeah, it was amazing. And then the class that I'm getting ready to talk about is also from the Indiana Arts Commission. They um, offer a program. Uh, I believe it's called um, Lifelong Learning is the kind of branch of it. And the idea is that everything in this program is geared towards uh, people that are over 55, which I love because that's kind of organically, those are my people anyways. (laughs) When I look at my demographic for who's watching my videos and participating, they're all 65-year-old women. I mean, this is all, these are my people. So I thought, well, this is great. I love this demographic anyways. So I had applied for this program and it was uh, three days of training, and then you put together your proposal for what you wanted to do with that information. And thus came the Let's Throw a Shuttle class, which I'm going to be offering uh, starting in January. So the class is geared towards um, students that are um, over 55, and it is a, um, a four-week class, which each session builds on the one before. Uh, it starts January 29th from 1 to 3. It's on a Monday afternoon. Uh, it's going to be held at Three Moons Fiberworks, my local weaving store, which we love, Rebecca, and them over there. And uh, then at the end of the four weeks, we're going to have a Saturday reception so everyone can kind of show off all the great things that they learned. They can invite friends and family in the community over, and uh, and we'll get to talk about the kind of cool things they learned while they were sitting down a loom and throwing a shuttle and doing some weaving. So with the groundwork set on this thing, is that something that you might now repeat again? I mean, set up again now that you've got it all laid out? Uh, yeah, I absolutely would. I just think it's such a fun concept. And like I said, that's uh, I love working with that demographic. Honestly, it's my favorite. So 
it's really, um, I think it's just going to be so much fun to have the opportunity to present something like this and then, you know, finesse it and do it over and over again, uh, working with uh, Rebecca. And she's, she, Rebecca's wonderful. Whatever my idea is, she's like, yes, we'll do it, whatever. <laughs> so, Chris, so, how many students can you fit in for that first? Oh, great question. Thank you, Esther. Uh, we have a cap of eight because of equipment. Um, we basically will set up all of the looms before you get there. So each student gets to sit down and start weaving immediately, which is part of my goal was, because that's how I can hook you. That's, if I can get you throwing a shuttle, I can get you to fall in love with weaving. So that is, um, so so we will take care of all of the setting up the looms ahead of time and uh, students can just get to the fun part right away. Sounds great. Well, that's Chris Acton and Let's Throw a Shuttle. And it's an introduction to weaving uh, for people over 55, sponsored by the Indian Arts Commission. Find out more about Chris, by the way, at actoncreative.net. Chris, thank you so much for coming back on Art in the Year Spotlight. Thank, thank you, Chris. Thank you. Art in the Year Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder, if you'd like to have your event on Art in the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Hi there, this is public radio theme composer B.J. Lederman, and you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Alan Harrison to Art on the Air. Alan is an author, speaker, writer, father, performer, nonprofit executive, and artist. For over 30 years, he led, produced, directed, promoted, raised money for over 300 theatrical productions on and off Broadway. Alan is currently a regular contributor for Arts Journal. He is also a two-time Jeopardy champion. Scene Change is his first full-length business release. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Alan. It's really Aloha. nice to meet you. Aloha and mahalo nui. Um, mahalo nui loa, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you join us and give us something that's a new perspective for, I think, a lot of our listeners especially because they're they're involved in non-profit workers, artists and arts organizations. So, Alan, first of all, we want to know about you. And I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you're now. So tell us all about Alan. Well, I started as a performer way back when, and uh, my my, the story I love to tell people is that I started in a generation where uh, a new theater had opened up in my hometown. Uh, they took an old movie theater that hadn't actually been used for years, and a live theater company took it over and had to renovate and rebuild. And they were also teaching classes at night. And when I was 16, I went into that place and said, I want to take classes. Uh, I knew my parents wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't back me on this uh, because they th they thought we needed another lawyer in the world, and um, but I said, what can I do to help? And they said, well, you know, the seats haven't been scraped for gum and such for probably fifteen twenty years. Uh, if you could take care of that, you know, and they thought I would just start and probably do one and then walk away, being a sixteen year old. But I did all of them down there on my back with the scraper and the solvent and and it was what was needed to be done. So I did it and I said, okay, that's done. Uh, when's my first class? And they said that they kept giving me odd jobs here and there. And ultimately I got hooked on theater by through the performance, but I also knew started to understand what it took to put 
on a production. And that was important. So then I went from, <clears throat> from college, I went to New York, uh, where I performed for a few years and then ended up working for Lincoln Center Theater uh, in marketing because somebody called me and said, hey, we're starting this theater company up at Lincoln Center. This is the 80s. The building hasn't been used in 11 years. And I'm thinking, oh, that's a lot of seats to scrape. That's a lot of gum. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, we're doing this thing. And so uh, we, be, we went, we ultimately were about a $25 million theater back in the 80s, um, 17 uh, Tonys later. Uh, and then I left uh, to go back to California. And then I, uh, I've ping pong since then Pittsburgh Public Theater, which is a, a terrific place. And then I was sort of headhunted for Seattle Rep, uh, where which is the first time I moved to Seattle. After a brief stop in Northern California, I ended up uh, running the Alabama Shakespeare Festival in Montgomery, Alabama. I like wow. to tell people that Mark Twain said that to live a full life. You have to live three years in a foreign country where they don't speak your language. And I feel <laughs> like now I've had a full life. After my contract was up, I sprinted back to Seattle and, and have been here since. Early in your life, was there plays that you were interested in? You was, I mean, you obviously were scraping seats, but you said you learned a lot in the process uh, there. But what did you learn and before you went off to New York and all these other things like in your young life? like What, what were the things you observed that later on became an impact on your life? Well, I have... One of the things I observed, and this is as a working actor, I did work a lot in those first four years in New York um, uh, because I could sing well. I think that was really the only reason that and I was darn cute back then. But um, I think what I learned most of all at the time was that the creative process for the actor is very internal, but the creative process for the producer is not only internal, but you can see an impact right away. The creative process for the actor gets shunted at some point when somebody says, no, you you have to do this. And you have to cross to that side of the stage. Why? Because you won't get paid if you don't. You know, that, that, becomes, the, <laughs> that becomes the thing. Uh, so that's why I went into producing. Um, I produced two off-Broadway shows that oddly, one was... Uh, roundly panned and it lasted nine months and the other one got great reviews and lasted six weeks so go figure um and then i went to you know seattle and and i knew that i was ultimately going to run a theater company after all of the theater companies and i ran arts west in seattle that was my last uh executive directorship and we uh turned it into a theater that actually meant something in the, in the community by changing the mission and changing the, the point was that it was what was the community asking for, not what were we vain people doing. That gave me a lot of insight into how uh, a good theater has to start to run. But even then, I didn't get the whole process. After that, I went into consulting, saw that Nonprofit arts organizations were being too often led by um, artistic visionaries rather than uh, the community ask, telling them what to do. And then I would, you know, I'd ask around the communities and say, "So, what are your big issues?" And they'd say, "Well, we got a big homeless problem, or we got a big uh, food, uh, we have food insecurity, we have kids who can't read, we have whatever we have." And I thought. 
You know, an arts organization is a nonprofit, and I went back to Section 501c3 of the IRS code, and guess what, folks? The arts are not a tax-exempt activity, according to the IRS. Uh, they don't even fall into, the, they have a, a miscellaneous bucket they call charitable activities, and it's not there either. And actually, it's not a bad thing that it's not there. Otherwise, Disney could be a nonprofit. Um, so I said, well, then the object of the game is to do something that helps people, not that serves the art. And over time, as I started writing my blogs about 11 years ago, and then now this book, it's become clear as at crystal clear that um, all other nonprofit organizations and charities either serve people or a few of them serve animals. But the rest of them, the arts organizations, always talk about serving the art. Well, the art doesn't need to be served. Art exists. Art is essential. Art exists whether we want it to or not, in the literal meaning of right. essential. Arts organizations are not essential. So to exist, you have to do something, not just do art. Yeah, I like that phrase that you said, produce impact instead of producing art. That's important because how do you measure success unless you, you measure the impact? And if you can't measure something, I hear a lot of people in the arts world, when I talk to them or consult with their companies, they say, well, how do you, I can't measure the impact of my audience. I said, well, then it doesn't exist. You have to find a way to do it. And sometimes it means working with another nonprofit organization and, and contributing to that. One of my favorite stories is about this uh, orchestra that I know that has ceased producing, not entirely, but has ceased producing most of its public concerts. It's down to just three or four in a hall. Uh, they still do, a, a, you know, like a lot of orchestras do that have a big park nearby, they still do that in the summer uh, for a couple of weeks and really popular stuff because it's free. And then um, the rest of the time, they're splitting up into eights and sixteens and 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 groups and and quartets sometimes. And they're going to tent cities and homeless camps. And they're going to under the the story I heard was the one that where they they brought a brass uh, octet to a uh, to an underpass, and they recognized that it had to be brass because underpasses are really loud. So they went there and they brought out the, they, you know, the, the, for the people who were living there, for the people in the tents there and, you know, in those blue tarps that were everywhere. And they all came out. They brought them chairs to sit on. They, they invited them out. They said, come on, we're doing a concert for you. Come on, come on out. So they did the concert for them. And that, that was a first step for them, for the people who needed it toward a, a moment of dignity that they weren't getting otherwise. There, you know, somebody knew they were there. And then they, that wasn't it. They brought social service people with them. So people would sit next to them during the concert and say, hey, can you, do you need a place to shower? Do you need a place to shave? Do you need a place to get some new clothes? Would you like to sign up for Section 8 housing? Is there something I can do for you? And something like, 20% of that particular group ended up in Section 8 housing. So, yeah. and I'm sure that once you have a house, once you have a place to live, and yes, there are mental health issues involved as well, but once you have a place to live, that solves a lot of things. That just solves a lot of things. You're dry. 
you're clean, there's a bathroom, you know, these are things that don't exist out under an overpass. So some of them went back to work. So now they're contributing back to society and all because ultimately the orchestra had a ton to do with that. So that's a nonprofit arts organization that is doing impact kept the data going and understood what they were doing. And then they received funding from their city from something like $3 million based on that one story. I guess the recommendation and, you know, in your book, which, which I strongly recommend actually to nonprofits, board members, uh, executive directors, even patrons, so to speak. But how do they make that transition to finding that? I mean, I know each community is different, but, uh, Let's take an art gallery and how do they do that? Or what do they look for? You got to talk. First of all, you have to talk and listen. So you have to find all of your community leaders. And I don't care if they're not arts people. Start with the obvious ones. Like, I don't know, your mayor, but go beyond that and go to the people who are leading the community and ask them, what do you need? Rather than give me money, which is usually what they they're saying. How, what can I do to get money? It's a different question. It's what do you need? How can I help you? What do you, what are your biggest wants and needs? You also have to have the want to. If you don't have the want to, which is I want to help my community rather than just stand here and, and, you know, open my art gallery and not understand why people aren't coming in, um, then you'll succeed. It's more than just having it's important to have artists, uh, uh, you know, using your lenses, your prism of diversity, equity, and inclusion to get art into the studio that perhaps speaks more to your community from the art standpoint. But you have to take the next step and actually go into the community and say, how can I help solve or mitigate your problems? And let's say your problem is that there's a huge uh, anti-LGBT neighborhood in which your art gallery exists. You can either, and you don't like that. You think that's a bad idea. Because if you don't think that's a bad idea, then why would you help? Um, so let's say you want to help them. You want to help the, the community be more tolerant, be more accepting. If you just do uh, gallery presentations with gay artists, that's not going to do it. That's just going to speak to the gay artists in town because they're the ones who might come. What you want to do is go out into the community and say and find ways to uh, work on boards, work on anti uh, 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 gay legislation, work on anti gay um, uh, activities that are out there. Talk to the community people involved, see what they need. They probably have better ideas on how to fix it than you do. But if you're there as a team member, you start to become indispensable to your community. And once you're indispensable, you're gold. You're not going anywhere. You're going to be fine. Um, Too often, I think the pandemic sped things up a bit on this, but arts funding has been dropping for years and years before the pandemic hit. I mean, the pandemic just rushed things along. Uh, The reason was that the arguments that are made to support the arts in America are do not land. There have been three arguments they've used for uh, half a century now. And the arguments are uh, butts and seats. Look how many people come. Well, butts and seats is not an is not a metric. Uh, uh, If it were, the Yankees would be a nonprofit organization. 
And in fact, if you look at the work they do in the community, you might think they're a better nonprofit organization. Um, so that's one. So that that leg is broken. The second leg is um, positive economic impact. This is where they talk about how because arts patrons, especially performing arts patrons, spend twenty dollars on top of their ticket price, um, and so on dinner and babysitters and parking and whatever. The average is 20. Well, it's a useless number, really, because if that were a nonprofit metric, then restaurants could claim to be nonprofit because people who buy dinner also go shopping and they also pay babysitters and they also uh, pay for parking. And sometimes they pay for a ticket for your orchestra, you know, so that that's a broken leg. It's a bad argument. The third argument is a little bit more intricate, and that is that national studies have shown that students' test scores have gone up from the experience with music and with art. And that may well be true. The problem is, is that national data is useless for a local arts organization. My question to the arts organization is always, so what did your students do? What did your your patrons do? Did you give tests to the audience before and after they <laughs> saw the show? Did you, what did you do? How can you prove that? If you can prove that, great. But if you can't, and if you're just relying on some national study, it's totally irrelevant to what you're doing. And also, is that your point? Is that your mission? to improve test scores in the community. Because if it were, that's a reasonably good mission. But if your mission is, we do art for art's sake, and oh, by the way, our ancillary effect is this, it's a byproduct, then no, that's not a, that's not a, a good leg to stand on. So you got three-legged stool and all three legs are broken. It's time, and the public knows that. So during the pandemic, we actually gave a word essential to, uh, activities that are being done. We said that there were nonprofits that were essential. There were food banks and, and homeless shelters. And we even used the word essential for commercial organizations like supermarkets and delivery services. But the arts were, as arts organizations, were deemed by the public not to be essential. Just because you yell, hey, we're essential too, doesn't make you essential. So as such, now you have to go out and be essential by doing the work to help your community be better. What will suffer in this case? Well, your artist's vision may suffer in the sense that you don't get to do everything you want to do. If, you, if that's what you wanna do as an organization, take the nonprofit status away, go be for-profit, get investors. There's no moral high ground to, a, uh, to the nonprofit status, there isn't. Just go be a commercial organization. Um, then your goal is money and you get to do whatever you want to gain the money. But if you're going to take money from me by being a nonprofit, and when I say that, I'm using that literally. If you're not paying taxes, guess who is? Right. I am. You are. Everyone is paying for you to be here. Then you have to be responsible to the owner of the company. And that's the community, not you. One thing you talked about were donors and, well, also toxic donors. And tell us a little bit about that process. I mean, we, I think we've all dealt with naming rights and things like that. But, yeah. 
in the arts, the arts are probably the only section of the nonprofit universe. And when I say that, I mean all charities. And yes, the, the arts are a charity. Um, it's where, the only one where the donors donate so the donors may attend. It's like, uh, it, 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 it would be ridiculous to think of a food bank that way. You know, a food, person is asked to pay to go to the food bank. And then they're, when they're in the food bank, they're also solicited for more money. And then they pay for the groceries. That's not how food banks work. That's how arts organizations work. So as, as a result, you have a whole bunch of, you know, most donors, 99% of them are terrific. But the 1% that aren't are just screwing it up for all of us. And it's the Sackler family uh, who polluted the, a whole bunch of arts fields and killed, what was it, 450,000 people with oxycodone. Yeah, you know what? They were arts washing their name. They should, that toxicity extends to you. If you have the, uh, the Sackler family gallery still... That says more about you than about them. They're already poison. Would you have the Adolf Hitler Theater Center right. if somebody gave you enough money? I don't think so. Yeah, so donors are an issue that they all have to deal with. Well, you know, we only have a few minutes left, and uh, you told us some of the recommendations you had for not-for-profits that they need to think of themselves as a charity or not. But uh, tell us how your book addresses that and your lectures and things like that and why that's important for them to pick that up and read it. Well, the book Scene Change, which is uh, out in the United States on February 1st, but it's available for pre-order at all places where you can buy books, including, and I always recommend your local independent bookstore, just tell them I want Scene Change by Alan Harrison or just Scene Change, it should pop up on their screens. But it'll be uh, actually physically available in bookstores on the 1st, and yeah, Amazon and Barnes & Noble too. But um, the first part of the book, I try to lay out the idea that may be foreign to the uh, to these nonprofit arts organization people, which is that you are in fact a charity, and and that takes a lot of con persuasion involved. If you don't think you're a charity, if you think you're oh, if you've made up a word to try to cover it, like you're non-commercial. Um, non-commercial is not a word. It, <laughs> it's used in public radio, I know, and it's used in public television, and that is because there is such a thing as commercial television. So that it, it gives a back and forth. But non-commercial really isn't a term of law. It's not a, it's just a, a made up word. And it allows people to think that they're not charities. They are charities. You're, you're a charity just as much as the Red Cross or the, uh, you know, the, the doula society. <laughs> um, so that lays it out. And then the last several chapters, which I hope people will not skip to, uh, because you won't understand why those things are ideas and important, are ideas on how to make things better. They are uh, ways in which you can, you can make things better for your organization and for your community. Don't skip to that part first. Mm -hmm. You won't understand it unless you read the first part. Um, it's a funny book. It's uh, very conversational. It's a very quick read. And, uh, I, you know, Larry liked it. I sure did. It is a very quick read, and it, uh, like I said, I, I really think that the arts organizations I'm involved with, uh, I'm going to 
make sure they get that book because I think it's important for them to see that in your perspective. That's Alan Harrison, and you can see his book, Scene Change, Why Today's Nonprofit Arts Organizations Have to Stop Producing and Start Producing Impact. Find him online. And Alan, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your nonprofit vision and how it really should be. I'm happy to be here, Larry and Esther, and uh, aloha to you. Mahalo for the conversation. Art in the Air listeners, do you have a suggestion for a possible guest on our show? Whether it's an artist, musician, author, gallery, theater, concert, or some other artistic endeavor that you are aware of, or a topic of interest to our listeners, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. This is Whitney Reynolds of The Whitney Reynolds Show, and you are listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, and on WVLP 103.1 FM. We would like to welcome Jay Weinberg to Art on the Air. JJ was nominated Best Traditional Artist at NFT NYC in 2021. Critics have described Weinberg as Mark Twain with a paintbrush and Norman Rockwell with a sledgehammer. We're looking forward to learning and hearing about irreverent icons, happy little hairdos, Afronaut Alliance, a well-regulated militia, all that glitters, Midas Love, the gold kisser, political kayfabe, and... Chicago Cubs. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, JJ. Awesome. Thanks for having me. That's a lot of stuff that you just. Uh, I know, I know. <laughs> I just wanted everybody to see the breadth of what you <laughs> have done, all these different series and, and things you're involved with. I appreciate that. Yeah, there's a wide scope. It, it sometimes gets a little bit crazy, a lot of spinning plates. That's true. Well, JJ, what we're interested in is your origin story, and uh, our audience always like to find out all about you, and I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about JJ. Well, one part of it, um, as, as you mentioned, happy little hairdos. Uh, you know, <laughs> when you're, I was a kid growing up, small town, Knox, Indiana is where I was, uh, I grew up. I was born in Winnemac, uh, but I always... I always wanted to be an artist. I think I was I was around 10 years old when I told my mom I was going to go to the American Academy of Art in Chicago. And that's exactly where I went to school. So for me, uh, I've been a lifelong creative. It's never been a mystery about what I wanted to do or where I was going to go. It's changed uh, faces and appearances from time to time. I when I actually when I got to art school, I wound up finding myself in music and I, and I pursued music for about 12 years uh, and kind of actually sat down my paintbrushes at that point in time. So what were you but doing in the music field? I was uh, a singer songwriter performer. We did, I mean, at the end of it, we were headlining a lot of the bigger, we never toured. And that was one of the things that kind of probably was a bit of a glass ceiling for us. The band's name was the energy commission. Um, and it started out actually as a, a hip hop group at the very beginning. I was in art school. I met my best friend, Tony, and we were skipping life drawing classes and rapping in the hallways and stuff. And it was just really a joke at the beginning. But because I have such a passion for just communication and trying to articulate different ideas and I'm an avid reader, it just was pouring out through words for me. And... um we just we started pursuing that and then it was in 2008 when i got arrested for singing one of my protest songs from the roof of a gas station 
here in Valpo. It was sweeps time in the media. Barack and Hillary were campaigning. Uh, but the song I'd written, in, I think in about 2006, it's called Price Gouging. And uh, on the surface, surface, it's this novelty song, real tongue-in-cheek about, you know, the price of fossil fuel. But the layer down for me as an artist was the socio-political price of full dependency on fossil fuel. So, you know, I, I kind of put it out there under this guise of a crazy young artist climbing on top of a gas. Well, I didn't climb up there. I had a bucket truck get me on top of the roof of a gas oh station. <laughs> and, you know, that that was a crazy time for us, though. Like, I... I um, they they had to send the of course they send the police but then the the police weren't enough and I knew this was going to happen it was all very 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 much planned like the whole thing was orchestrated flash mob before I even knew what a flash mob was which was basically just having pockets of people coming in to fabricate a crowd which then brought a real crowd um, and then uh, but they, so they had to send out the fire department of course to bring a fire truck to get me down. And that was all, you know, part of the plan because I knew it was going to take some time. But that's a very long story. And <laughs> it really basically ends with the story like going on Good Morning America. I was doing radio, TV interviews all across the United States. And um, then I ended up riding a bicycle donated by Trek to the White House from Valparaiso, right from my front room at front door of my apartment to the front door of the white house and it was all part of like i wanted to i'm i take my art very seriously it's it's funny because i i do run the gamut of parody and satire and humor i have a lot of that but at the base there's something very serious about what i do and you know they say that art imitates life and sometimes for me my life imitates my art it goes backwards and in that case in particular, you know, I rode this bike from Valparaiso to Washington, D.C., and it was because of my art. It drew me onto the bike. I hadn't ridden a bike since I was a kid, but um, it was just something I had to do to kind of punctuate that I meant what I was saying, I guess. And uh, Well, it so, also seems very theatrical as well. So when oh, you absolutely. did the So when you did the Val, it's like it's like performance art. Um when you did the Valpo thing, did you, you were expecting that type of media attention? Absolutely. Yeah, I was absolutely expecting. Again, that's part of why I did it during sweeps time in the media. You know, one story gets picked up at, by one person naturally. I mean, it's almost like constant sweeps now with uh, the way that the media cycle is currently, especially with social media and all that. But it, it was 2008, you know, so I knew it would get picked up. It's the funny thing is, what inspired it is I was listening to, at the time, I was listening to a lot of talk radio, and I listened to WGN radio a lot, and I was listening to John Williams, and he was talking about Elliot Spitzer getting in trouble with a prostitute, and the prostitute happened to be a musician, and then her webpage blew up, and that was partially where I got the idea to take this protest song that I'd written and turn it into an actual theatrical, you know, performance, as, as you're saying. And so what were you actually arrested for then? What did they, um, I mean, what part of that? Trespassing and disturbing the peace. Uh, so I, I pled guilty to the trespass, but I also spoke to Gus Olympidus. He's the owner of, 
you know, all the family expresses, which is where I got on top of. And because it was never about him, you know, the, the especially with convenience stores or gas stations, the the gas, they make hardly anything off of the gas sales. They're making it off of convenience sales. But it was just I needed a stage. And the, to me, the, my wor- the world is my stage, you know. I think <laughs> everyone, the world is our stage. And it's something that we forget in life. And there's, there's a body of work that I have coming out uh, probably sometime in 2024 here, in the early part of 2024, that it's actually a collaboration with Val Kilmer, the actor Val Kilmer. And a part of it, what I'm saying with the work itself is the notion that if we understand that life is this metaphysical stage and that we're just characters wearing masks, once, once we remove the mask, we realize that we're a character. And then once we realize that we're that character we also take a step back and realize that we're the screenwriter we're the director and that this is just a drama that uh, we're living out and so for me all of these things overlap they seem completely disparate on the surface if i have a happy little hairdos my my bob ross (laughs) parody homage you know it it seems so so goofy but there are so many tie-ins and so many actually rich deep metaphysical metaphors that come from it if you just start going a little bit below the surface so so jj music seems to be is that in your rearview mirror i guess is the first part of the question and then how are you now developing the art and i mean the art is extremely striking it's almost illustrative and yet it just really jumps out with the detail it's uh almost kind of hyper-realistic. But tell us about that is where is music still part of your life first of all and then tell us a little bit about your art yeah, I love that. First of all, music will probably never leave me entirely because, uh, you know, I have a habit of we have big animal people here. Like we have a nonprofit. It's called Silver Stray, silverstray.org. If anyone wants to check that out, it's actually focused in Gary for the pet families in Gary, but big animal people. And when I go around the house, I have a tendency to start singing these wild little melodies to the animals. And those are a lot of times the backbones for songs because the melodies themselves are like, oh, wow. So it just kind of lands on me. I, I've, I've become a channel for, for that. And the, the Val Kilmer project, as I mentioned, actually takes, it borrows from a couple of songs that I, that I wrote. One was in, from 2000, the other one's like 2005. And I kind of hybrid them together and they feature as a part of this multimedia piece that I'm working on. So in one way to answer your question, it's in my rear view, but you know, you still look up at your rear view all the time, right? (laughs) Right. So, so it's there. Um, but I, I don't, I don't have a ton of ambition for it, but the funny thing is, is right when you, it's kind of like when we want something, we always want the thing. And then when we stop wanting somehow it comes right back to us. And I find that happening sometimes, uh, with the music. You're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, on WVLP, 103.1 FM. The other part of your question, you had said, what, um, where is the art going then right now currently? Well, what, what, and also, yeah, what you, you know, and how you develop it, how you approach a piece of art, because it's, your style is kind of hyper-realistic, so how did that develop? Well, so I, I, um... You know, I went to art school at the American Academy of Art, and you said that 
Uh, a lot of it's very illustrative, which is that's what my major was, was illustration. I never actually took uh, many painting classes. I mean, I had, you know, it's it's very much based in traditional arts at the beginning, but versus something like the Art Institute, the American Academy is a more commercial school. And so there's that's that illustration being my major and not having taken really uh, any fine art painting classes that my illustration when I do come to the painting uh, that my illustrative style I think is kind of heavy handed in it I'm actually trying to step away from it a little bit uh, in certain places just because I want to push Caravaggio is like one of my favorite artists and you know I I, right now I'm kind of like I guess there's that illustrated there's the Norman Rockwell aspect of it but I'd like to lean more, even more towards Caravaggio. But I grew up on comic books. I mean, I was drawing comic books, went back to, the, to how I got started. All through elementary school, middle school, I was drawing comic books. I grew up around a family business. And so that's another part of the way that my brain works differently than a lot of artists. Is I, I grew up really in an entrepreneur environment. And so a lot of artists, they, they don't see the business of art or the show business. And that's why I had different levels of success with the band, I think, and why my art sometimes has a, a little bit of a different um, uh, bend on it. But, I mean, when I was a kid, I was even drawing up schematics to build a comic book store on our yard, like on our lawn. So while kids were making lemonade stands, I was trying to build a comic book <laughs> store, right? That's so, so cool. Yeah, so I mean, that that comic, and, and it, you'll see that through like the Happy Little Hairdos. If you look at the, the Bob Ross project, it's very, very illustrative. And I wasn't making any bones about those being hyper-illustrated. They're definitely illustrations. Um, but you'll see my influences from film to comic books TV, literature, whatever it might be, surface um, in these characters that you see in Happy Little Hairdos. But I guess for me, mainly, I just I have to be called to something. I hear artists a lot of times say they talk about artist block, and I've been creating my whole life, and I've never experienced artist block. I don't know what that is. I, I it's a curse to a degree. I almost wish I could hand off some of the stuff that I have because there there's still projects waiting in the wings, a massive, major. I mean, things that that I know that one, a person would have this one idea and run with it for their whole life, and that would be their one thing. And so, while I enjoy going from you know happy little hairdos to a well-regulated militia because I, it helps me communicate what's happening in my experience and my, and my spirit. It's also a double-edged sword because it's very hard to gain traction. I w for, like for music, I would say this to musicians a lot of times, because especially younger musicians when I'm kind of giving advice, you can't be the Beatles' White Album when you come out. You have to be... The Beatles, you know, they gain their traction by doing cover songs old R&B and, and really you get that and then you get to open up and be a little bit more diverse. So for myself, it was like that with the music. We went from hip hop to swing and rock and back again. 
And it's like that with my visual art where I just, I run down so many different channels that uh, it can become a little bit difficult for people to comprehend exactly what's going on, I think, from time to time. But my, I, I, I'll be remiss if I don't mention it, and I feel like it's a perfect time to say that in 2022, I wrote my first book, and I've wanted to write a book my whole life. Like I said, I'm an avid reader. And that's part of why I think another, I guess, advice to artists or just people in general, if you, it's like a bank. If you feed, if you keep putting stuff in this energy bank, in this idea bank, reading, watching films, whatever it might be, you know, there's going to be a lot to draw from having life experiences. It's, it's all there. So, um, but in 2022, I wanted to write a book always. Uh, I lost my dog, Francis in early 2022, just after I got back from New York City, that whole NFT NYC, I came back, I got COVID. It kind of wrecked a lot of my, my progress in 2021 because I had a pretty amazing year. And then it was kind of flatlined by me being sidelined for six weeks, just not even be able to get out of bed. And then I got better and I was like, 2022 is going to be a fantastic year. I'm ready for it. And about you know, less than a month into 2022, I had to say goodbye to my dog, Francis, and it was heart-wrenching. She was kind of, she was my, just my buddy. I mean, from when I rode the bike to DC, she was at the hotel every time, like I would ride into the next spot. She rode all the way to DC. So she's was such a huge part of my life. And so in that, I, I said, you know, I was about four days in after uh, she made her transition and I started writing just cathartically. And I remember, I think it was Seth Godin. Somebody said something about writing a book. And, and they said, like, it's too intimidating to think about writing a book. And he's like, well, yeah, but you don't think about writing a book. He's like, can you write a page a day? If you write a page a day for a year, then you have a book. And so after having this experience with Francis and starting to write, I was like, I know I can attach it to this moment. And I, I basically vowed to Francis that I would write at least a page a day for the next mm -hmm. 365 days so that when I came to the anniversary of saying goodbye, I wouldn't come empty-handed. And so the title of the book is Serendipity According to Francis. It's uh, the autobiography of an alchemist, the <laughs> mystical memoir of a man and his dog is what I say. So, mm -hmm. And it goes through all these stories of serendipity, uh, Indra's net, how these jewels just connect together. One thing comes to the next and they all, all these things connect magically. And I'm saying that because when it comes to the body of my work, I wrote this book over seven journals just by hand. I wrote at least a page a day. Sometimes I wrote 12 or 20 pages, but it was all by hand. So, um, I, in writing it, I looking looking back at the book, I know that I, it's all handwritten out, so it's scribbled. So now what I'm doing <laughs> is trying to do an audio recording, use my musical recording abilities to then do an audio recording of the book. And the reason why it's so important to me, aside from what it means for Francis, is that it goes through all of these stories. Uh, it goes through me giving my dad a painting for Christmas that winds up on Sports Center's top plays, you know, of the Cubs. World Series win. It goes over the meanings behind my well-regulated militia and series, a body of work, and and it goes over the happy little hairdos, the 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 rise and the fall 
and it's just it gives context i think so much to all of my work so it's not it's it's far from being to the point to where it can be released right because i <laughs> like again i have to finish the audio recording first and then after i'm done with that there'll be some editing and then of course it'd be approaching publishers and that sort of thing but for me i have there's a certain piece that came from realizing that I have so much written down now in this book that, you know, if I if I got hit by a bus, it's all kind of there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is such a sense of a, just like finishing a, a work of art. There's just such a peace and um, satisfaction to that. So writing this, um, are you more at peace with the whole experience of Francis? I mean, did it give you that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, I it go, I get so granular with it. It gets right down to, you know, the like the story just came up the other day. We were at a theater, popcorn drops on the ground, and it was another little serendipitous tale, part two, basically. And I, it was just like I remember the first time I dropped a piece of popcorn on the ground, and it was so tragic, like this Shakespearean piece of popcorn, right? Because it was the first time I had to pick up popcorn off the ground in fifteen years. Mm. something so small right, right. but like I, I, so the observing that and then like i said yeah just observing all of these triumphs like 2021 was such a great year and that's why i thought again going into 2022 i mean i did this project with uh george lopez you know he was crying he said thank you you restored my faith that people actually listen i had uh had this rise with the bob ross project got connected to the val kilmer thing this digital derivative of one of my well-regulated militia pieces sold in a auction house in new york city with andy warhol like in the same lot so cool yeah Banksy, and it was it was just such a crazy crazy time and um i it does bring me a lot of peace to know that this book kind of has it all there you only have a couple minutes left and we want to give you time to tell us about where some of your work will be seen especially in 2024 where they can find your book and uh, and also where they can find you online and information about that. Yeah, so I'm on the social media. I'm on Instagram, just JJ Weinberg. My website's jjweinberg.com. It gets updated a little less than uh, my social media does naturally. <laughs> Again, with all the spinning hats, it sometimes can, can take a while to get updated. I do actually do a little bit of a podcast that you can see on YouTube. Actually, I think my the, the one is... Uh, a bio site i think it's bio bio.site slash jj weinberg and then that would take you to a lot of my different uh channels to where you can find like my youtube and everything else on there yeah it's bio.site slash jj weinberg and as far as exhibits i'm actually speaking at nft nyc in 2024 in new york in april i spoke uh in 2023 and um, I do have some some projects. The Val Kilmer project, like I said, will be coming out here. I'm still kind of trying to iron out exactly when and where. I have this vision of it kind of being a red carpet event because, as I said, it is a multimedia experience and it's kind of plays like a short film. So, you know, I don't have that completely ironed out, but you can definitely catch up with me on my website or my social media. Instagram's JJ Weinberg and then Jay Got Game. On Twitter, J A Y G O T G A M E. Yeah. 
Well, JJ, we appreciate you coming on the show. That's JJ Weinberg, and you can find him at jjweinberg.com and all the other places. Also on Facebook is J Weinberg, and uh, Best Traditional Artists, and in so many things. JJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you guys so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Next week, Art of the Year will feature two more artists that will be featured at South Bend's 2024 For the Love of Art Fair with electric cellist Michael John DeHayes and assemblage sculptor Susan Ward. We'd like to thank our guests this week on Art of the Year, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. Art on the Air is heard Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Art on the Air is also heard Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP, 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org. Our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air. If you're interested in being a guest or send us information about your arts, arts-related event or exhibit, please email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, B-R-E-C-H dot com, or contact us through our Facebook page. Your hosts were Larry Breckner and Esther Golden, and we invite you back next week for another episode of Art on the Air. Aloha, everyone. Have a splendid week. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and